Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the RC Industry Podcast. For those of you new to the show, I'm comedian Simon Kane, and this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio and today, theatre and the Edinburgh Fringe. Nicka Burns OBE is a London theatre producer and co-owner of NIMAX Theatre Group, comprising of The Palace, Lyric, Apollo, Duchess and more. Beyond owning a lot of influential theatres, Nika is best known as the director and producer of the Edinburgh Comedy Awards since it started in 1984. These awards have launched the careers of comedians including Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, Eddie Izzard, Jack D, and many, many more. There's a Wikipedia list of all of them if you actually want to look them all up, but essentially this is one of the most coveted awards at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for comedians. I had her on to talk about if there are too many awards, what the impact of an award has outside of the Edinburgh bubble, the gender split in the nominees, and much, much more. This podcast would be useful for anyone looking to take their debut show up to the Edinburgh Fringe, or anyone who is just interested in the behind the scenes of the most prestigious and coveted awards at the festival. Please do share this with anyone you think will get any value out of it. If you're new here, please hit the subscribe button. If you're old here, please do consider to give us an honest review in iTunes. But for now, this is Nika Burns. We have sun in Edinburgh instead of rain. How long will that last? Who knows? Probably minutes. Yeah, I, I'm sorry for wasting the five minutes of sun. Yes, indeed. Um, what I normally do is I ask, the, I, get, I ask the first question and I ask the guests to incorporate that in their answer. So I can yeah, just yeah, do an fine. introduction and then yeah. cut it to that. Okay. Um, so the first question which is going to be, I mean, I'm, for this I'm going to presume everyone knows what the Edinburgh Awards are. Okay. So it means that we don't have to go into that too much. But I was going to ask, wh- why did you start the awards? And is that still the same reason why they carry on now? Uh, well, two answers to that. In that, um, although I do tell people, uh, I didn't actually start them. Right. So what happened? Here is the absolutely definitive story of uh, what started out as the Perrier Awards. And they were indeed founded by Perrier in 1981. They were very smart because they picked up um, on the fact that something was happening in comedy. Because, of course, 1981 was a massive year for comedy. Because that is the official, inverted commas, going on here, uh, birth of the um, alternative comedy movement. Though, in fact, it started two years earlier um, by Alexis Sale in 1979. And um, it suddenly became a proper movement in 1981 when all the comedy 
clubs started springing up. And I was there right at the beginning. However, so Perrier came up with this idea. They wanted to do an award at the Edinburgh Fringe. They came up and they talked to the then, the then um, uh, director of the Festival Fringe Society, um, Alistair Moffat. And he said, well, there's a, there's a Fringe Festival. There's nothing, you know, comedy's an up-and-coming thing. And that's how they decided to do a comedy award. And it was a most timely thing. And that was the year when, in 1981, the first year when um, Cambridge Footlights won in the wonderful lineup, of course, in, which included Emma Thompson, Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Tony Slattery. I think Richard Rauch might have been playing the piano, uh, Penny, Penny, Penny Dyer. And uh, it, was a, it was a very extraordinary time. And that happened for three years, and it was very small. And um, at the end of three years, uh, which was the year that Los Trios from Barkas won, um, that was the shortlist weren't published in those days. Officially, the panel, uh, they didn't have a sort of comprehensive style that we do. Um, the panel was sent to see shows, basically, by the person who was then running them, who was Lou Stein, out of the Gate and Latchworth Theatres. And the prize was £1,000 and a week's run in London. In nine, after the 1983... Uh, festival um, I was now running I was now artistic director of the Donmar Warehouse in the old days when it was much fringier than it is today but very same sort of same theatre and I booked I put on a, a act from Edinburgh which I thought was fantastic uh, called Pookie Snackenberger who had been shortlisted Pookie Snackenberger is became something quite iconic called Stomp and that's where it started here in Edinburgh and it was all the same thing. It was it was Luke Creswell and Steve Nichols, and they had the the drums. And this is that was their, the year when they were trying it out. And Glynis Henderson, you know, friend in Edinburgh promoter, picked it up. And um, he he thought it looked wonderful. Chief Executive Perry thought it looked fantastic in the Donmar. And he approached us and he said, you know, this would love your theatre. Love, would you like to take over um, our comedy awards? And I had a look at them and I went, no. Nah. <laughs> Not really. He said, why? You know, it's, it's kind of a bit hurt. Said, why? I said, well, it's not a big enough vision behind them. And he said, well, what, all right, would you look at What would you like to do? So I had to think about it. And I came up with something that was much bigger. And I said, and I was working with Ian Albury, who was the person who owned the Donmar at the time. And uh, I said, right, you're going to have to spend a lot more money far more than you're doing it now. It needs to be done in a very, very organised way. How you judge an award is important. I want it to be much more than a week and a thousand pounds. We came up with this proposal and at the time, nobody was doing what we decided to do, which is we wanted to recreate the fun of somewhere like the multi-sharing you get, like the assembly rooms queue in those early days. And so I said, I want to do a three-week London season. Uh, we'll do uh, three shows a day on some of the days. So we'll be able to take nine shows. And that may sound very little now. It was radical at the time. It was exciting. It was really different. And it meant we could bring more people and showcase more talent. But we didn't do it just as comedy. We, did, we had seven, nine, 11 o'clock slots. And seven o'clock, we did drama to get something that wouldn't come down, something radical. And then at 9-11, we did, um, we only did 11 o'clock slot on Fridays and Saturdays. 
Um, Don Mar already was doing late night comedy, so that worked well with that. And uh, to my surprise, and I asked for a lot of money, a lot more money than they, and they said yes, they loved it. So actually, in a sense, then I rebirthed the awards, if you like, for 1984. After the, the three years, it was done in the old-fashioned way, and then in 1984 we had the much bigger thing and uh, more money, and we called it, the, and we did the Perrier Pick of the Fringe in London, and um, it. That was the first London to Edinburgh season to bed in, because that, again, at that time, people just weren't doing it. And it was a massive success. And we had a, a we, we brought, got together a set of very careful rules, which guaranteed a number of things. And the most important thing was that every single act that was eligible, and the eligibility are kept, is kept simple, um, every single act would be seen and judged. Um, and we have a very democratic system. It's run so that it's very, very transparent, and that's important. The judging panel judge it. They have no influence brought upon them by a sponsor or by ourselves. It is a real thing, and I think that's one of the reasons, actually, why they've been so successful, because people trust them to be, to be exactly that, thorough, independent, emulating what Edinburgh Festival Fringe is, which is open access to all. Mm. So we don't care what the venue is, we don't care if it's someone's, for, you know, we, we, we welcome first timers, obviously. Mm. Uh, we, also, we see everybody and everyone is treated equally. And that, that is the founding nature of it. So if you, in a sense, I refounded them in 1984 and they've been developed since, and they've grown as the comedy industry itself has changed. Because uh, you'll laugh now, because I can tell you that in the early days, I personally saw every single show that was eligible. And then, because it's like the first year, 1984, there was only about 40, 45 shows mm. eligible. I can't remember the, the exact amount. So it was easy. Mm. Um, and of course, there a lot of late night shows then. I mean, that's the great thing, I think, now, is that comedy's been, a, been able to come in earlier, because a lot of shows... The venues at that time were putting comedy on at midnight. And there were very few professionals. You were going through a lot of comedy reviews. Mm -hmm. And the standard now overall festival is just in a different league. I mean, there are always some good people. But overall, you know, comedy standard is pretty good, I think. How, how have you then managed to develop a system to cope with... Because the festival is just expanding every year. I was told this year there's 300 more comedy shows versus last year because it's the 70th year. Well, we have 700 shows eligible this year. Right. And uh, we had to make some pretty big changes. And, of course, along the way, there have been two additional awards. Mm -hmm. And the Best Newcomer was founded in 1992 during the festival. Right. And it was founded because, actually, of one particular act... And that particular act was, panel went to see, and they, we got the first judge to come back saying, this particular act, this guy's a genius. The act's all over the place, because it's his first time, but he's really special. And that was, of course, the winner that year, which was, da-da, Harry Hill. And he just clearly, funny bones, mm. real, real deal. But they said, you know, we're, we're looking at the show as a whole, and he... He's the, we had Steve Coogan win that year, and we had Joe Brand. It's not the show itself has got lots of things that need to be could just be done tighter. Blah blah blah. So I said, well, I looked at it and thought, 
things have developed a lot further now. We now have something which a much bigger, pro- proper professional comedy scene because so many the, the clubs the clubs were critical to the growth of live comedy in this country because they had somewhere to go and play. And I remember back in 1983 uh, when actually. Uh, I was working with him in a play, you'll laugh, but one of the godfathers of alternative comedy, John Dowie, uh, would say that it took ten, t- 10 years to learn to become a comic mm. because you couldn't get many gigs. You were lucky, you know, you, you were lucky to get a certain amount of gigs a year. By the time we got to the 1992, that long, the, 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 the uh, teaching process for a comedian, because you know as a comedian, the audience teaches you to mm-hmm. be better. Every night, every line that comes out of your mouth is judged by laughter or no laughter or silence or that right kind of listening silence. Mm. You can tell exactly how your material is going down, can't you? Yeah. And also, you start making that connection, which is, I mean, why I am so admiring as someone who is, uh, you know, very well-known theatre producer... I just respect comedians so much because, for me, they go beyond most artists. They have to write the material. They've got no no one's no other person's words to hide behind. You know, if you're in a play and not going by, go bloody script. You know, <laughs> can't yeah, do that yeah, with yeah. comedy. Your script. Yeah. You then have to really find who your inner performer is, mm. and that doesn't. Some, with some people it is just themselves mm. most people it's an extension of themselves with other comedians it's a total character mm. so but that that doesn't come instantly it for those that are doing it themselves it starts from the beginning but they then find a way to develop that a little bit more when you're being looked at under lights on a stage and a whole room is staring at you and uh, then of course you find out about the most important thing of all, which is, of course, timing. And how long do you keep that pause? Mm -hmm. How do you land it? You learn about that fantastic thing about buttoning off a a gag Mm. and that sometimes if you just change the order of the words, you get a better laugh. And you learn about structuring your act and, of course, the pickups, the little, all the times at the beginning when you, you... uh, just tease in the theme, tease in a moment, and suddenly, a bit later, you bring it in, and the audience goes, oh, that's oh my God, we just, they get it, they know what you're talking about, and you get a much bigger laugh. And you learn it on the job, most of all. You can spend your hours sweating, writing your show, as they all do, but the proof is, whether it was, proof of whether it works is when you're standing up there. Mm. And the clubs are essential, and for those that don't don't stay in live work, they will take away the comedy writing and delivery knowledge that they've learnt hard, and 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 put it to very good use. That that's their training, that's their university of how to write and perform comedy, and Edinburgh is the. Daddy, it's Oxbridge of them all, you know. Boot camp. Boot camp, yeah, yeah, is that what yeah. you put? Of course, that's a good word yeah. for it. Yeah. Well, so say you go and see a show yeah. that you're going to be judging or you're going to be putting forward for an award, and it's a bad day for that performer. So the audience have come in, maybe it's a drunk Saturday night in Edinburgh, or it's, or it's anything that yeah. just throws it off. How do you take that into account then? 
Well, I think we have a very experienced panel mm-hmm. and it's essential. It's absolutely essential. Um, and the, one of the keys to getting to having a good award is who is judging it. It's really important. And we really think about it. And, you know, you'll have been in an audience, I've been in an audience, and you can tell, you know, if you've got a disruptive audience, you, you, you absolutely take that into consideration. But you can still hear good material if it comes through. And there are, there are, there are times when someone's come, wrote, written, a, written the, the note on the show or, or rung and said, look, I went to X last night. He, had a, he she had a terrible audience. Uh, it was one disruptive person, wrecked it for everybody, dealt with it very well, could see they were thrown, but there were some really good bits. We need to go another night. So we do take that into consideration. Long answer for short, long answer to what was a very two words really. Yes, we, we take that into consideration. Yeah, definitely. And, and obviously 2013 was when the first Free Friends show actually won like yes, an award. Yes, uh, but they had been nominated going back. I think Mike Wozniak was nominated back on the Free Fringe ages ago. Mm. So we do, we've always come to the Free Fringe mm. and we did give Peter Buckley Hill an award, yeah. not so, you know, actually quite reasonably early after its foundation mm. for, for actually founding it, because I think it's really important. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a misconception that, that you guys don't go to the no! Free Fringe. No, tell everybody, we have always gone to Free Fringe shows. We, it's really, <laughs> how they could, read the rules. They're on the website, they're really clear. We do not care where you perform. We do not care what you are charging. We do not care if you have no set. You certainly don't have to have any technology whatsoever. We will come and see you wherever you are. Mm. So please, as long as, what you do have to do is be running the right dates, Mm -hmm. because if you don't do, you can't come and do three dates in the last week, because we can't get the panel around in that time. It's practical. Mm. And uh, if you cancel, on the day, because you don't feel like it, there wasn't enough audience, you've cancelled. We're not going to guarantee to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got If you're sick and someone rings up and tells us, then we accept that. Uh, and you do have to be running, you have to be doing a minimal ne- length. And you'll know why, and that is because it's much, much easier to do a great 20 minutes than it is to do what I call the Edinburgh Hour, which does occur to me that it is the same hour as the psychiatrist hour which is 50 minutes exactly. <laughs> you know because you have to be coming out and I just thought the other day it's that is sort of quite amusing particularly with you know the pressure that comedians have and also where they've come from that there's been so much discussion about comedians and mental health yeah and uh, there's a much bigger... We, can, we could have a whole day conference on that. It's a very, very special job, and it's a very special person that feels that needs to and wants to do that job, and it's hard, yeah. and I get it. <laughs> the, so I was only laughing because the second joke in my show is about how um, comedy is really good therapy, but only for someone who can't afford a therapist yes. and doesn't want to get any better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That anyone doesn't get any better is good. So yeah. I have a laugh at that. Very much. <laughs> no, but I, I know what you mean. It's um, it's kind of weird that the because I, I noticed that more performers now want to tour hours than do club sets. A lot of my friends who get onto the club circuit feel like they get trapped into that because it's very much a cyclical cycle, especially throughout the year. So I feel like there's been this sort of um, I don't want to say backlash, but there's been this change and a trend in performers trying to work towards an hour to tour because it's for, either get more stage time, be they have the audience that are coming for them rather 
rather than coming for a club, or like just for anyone who's t- turning up and stuff. Do you think the awards had an impact on on the wider scope of comedy for people to try and build hours rather than build club sets? I think. Well, first of all, um, I think comedians strive all the time, but I think the awards have helped. I wouldn't ever take the credit for absolutely anything at all, mm-hmm. but I think that there were. It, only a very few comedians were coming up to do an hour. The venues weren't giving them space. What the awards did was to focus on comedy as a genre. It, it assisted the press to get more involved because there was a story and there was a hook for them. And I think that, well, I'm pretty certain that the awards have been a great contributor to getting more attention to comedy as a genre. And what we do is we put a really big spotlight here on comedy. And it makes me so cross um, that I still feel this very passionately that comedy is not given, in my view, the status that other other genres of entertainment get. Theatre, dance, um, uh, music, the opera and more higher opera singing and and uh, and forms of opera and ballets and um i think uh i think it should and very in fact this very year a very senior journalist told me that you know if space was tight on a paper the first thing that the editor cut was comedy space and put other really? reviews instead yeah and that's that's so i i think that we take we take our role in uh, putting the spotlight in comedy very seriously, we work at it, you know, it doesn't come out of nowhere. But the awards give a great story. You know, you come and there's so many acts, it's very difficult, whether you're a journalist or a public, to actually see your way through it. Because you do want to, to read all the blurbs and you want, everyone's trying to go to something that they think they're going to enjoy. If it's a risk, they think they're going to enjoy it before they go. Yeah. So um, I think the fact that y- we comedy starts to get a bigger buzz around it and that by talking about it in in print publicly and on the radio and everywhere else it was it helped make it seem more have well, I think it helped grow the audiences but it also made it more worthwhile for a comedian to come up and then they realized how important it was because that here you could actually improve your craft in a way you can do nowhere else mm. I mean you must be finding this while you're here, mm. that you have three weeks in exactly the same space, so you know your space before you go in, you know how it works, you know how your sound system works, you know the distance between yourself and the front row, all those things that you suss out that it's you can work with when you know what you've got more easily. You don't have to do the just sussing out the venue moment, you know, when you go in, into a club that you haven't been to for a while. And, uh, and you can actually... you. Take, take the moments and start rewriting your show as the audience tells you whether you've got it or not. Mm. Have you made changes to your show while you've been here? Yeah, quite a few. Yeah, but quite a few, because they tell you. 
But it's having that continuity, isn't it? Doing it night after night after night with yeah. an audience that's listening. Well, this is the thing. So uh, in July, I did 19 previews in the whole of the month. And I did that over two different venues that I knew very well. Yeah. Specifically as like a run through to get ready for this. But then I hear things like, we were talking about Stuart Lee before we, well, not about this, but we were talking about Stuart Lee before we got on. And, uh, you know, he says things like, oh, back in the 1980s, you know, he used, he used, he used to come up with an idea and you could perfect it over the month. And there was no pressure because there was only about 10 of us. And it was a whole different ball game. And, and I kind of find sometimes, I mean, I add in, I have little lines that I can change each night because they're fun to do for me and whatever. But I find that I kind of want it to be as polished as I can be when I get it up here because there are judging panels up here, because there are industry walking around all the time. So um, do, you, do you find that you want there to be a, a polished, like you, you want it to look like it's literally, I can put that in this theatre, I can put that in this venue? No. Or do you want it to be like a moment? You want it to be like an experience? Of, we just wanted to be a great show. Um, okay. some, some people's shows are, part, part of it is a kind of roughness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got, I think that by the time you've got towards the end of the festival, you should have got better. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Because sometimes I see someone right at the beginning and I see him right at the end, you go, yeah, look what he's learned or yeah. she's learned. Look yeah. what they've learned yeah. here. That is the point of it. Yeah. And uh, and I know because I did it myself. Mm. And, you know, 1983, my little theatre company, we, we brought up our play, uh, uh, but we also wrote, did a review which was called a little comedy, a little comedy for Bertolt Brecht. So it's a joke mm. theatrically. Mm. But the cast was myself, Mark Steele, and an Australian comedian called George Nobody. Right. And uh, it was part of that whole. We were experimenting. We were working. We worked with comedians from very, from mm. very early days. And the play that Colin Watkins, who went on to work with Ken, with uh, Ken Campbell, we wrote was called. It was called. Uh, play Strindberg, but Strindberg was played by John Day. Right. And the previous year, I'd come up with my own the play the first time in 1982 as a young actress, where I just wanted to write, turn this novella into a play, which I, I sent it to a guy I was at university with, who I was his leading lady, he directed the shows, Colin Watkins, and we brought it to Edinburgh, and it went on the Celtic Lodge, and it was a huge hit, and it changed my life. Yeah. And we got into, you know, in that year we were doing the, doing the play Dulcimer at Fimbra Arms and we did late night comedy and then stayed on and did late night comedy, alternative comedy club on Fridays and Saturdays. Mm. And all our guest acts, you know, that was our, my generation were at the time, there was Jeremy Hardy. I just bumped into Rory Bremner this week and he said, she gave me my first gig ever. She, I was the guest spot at the Fimbra Arms upstairs. Amazing. And I used to compare yeah. because we couldn't afford a compare. Yeah. Uh, and so I did it and uh, it was small and I learned and I would stand at the door a day and I would say hello to every single member of the audience. Mm. So later on I could go, if someone had come I could go, oh, there you go, that's what an accountant does for you. <laughs> Is that your, that's an accountant's idea of a funny heckle. Whoa, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not pretending to be a comedian at all. No, no. But like with Compang, you can do it in that. Yeah, sense. of course. You get to know the audience, you've got yeah. rapport with them and you talk to them. Yeah, definitely. But And I watched them all, I watched them all hone their acts. Mm. And um, then I was, became 1983, I... Uh, Dilly Keen asked me to go and direct Fascinating Ida, which of course is a comedy troupe, mm. an all-girl female comedy song troupe. So. Well, it, uh, what you were saying before, you said that comedy is the first thing to be cut from, from like yeah. arts and stuff. Uh, do you think it comes back to 
the jester thing like the jester was always the low end of the yeah, entertainment and I was thinking about that I think that's a very good way of putting it um, and also jester yeah jester was low end of entertainment I was asking myself the question is it because it's populist you know is there something I mean now it's a massive strand of entertainment and it's actually just going back to what it used to be like because mm. comedy the English have always the British have always loved comedy mm. we had all over the UK uh, were the great big empires which were lots of com com variety halls mm. and uh, we used to have variety vaudeville everywhere mm. and then what happened was they sort of died pretty much after World War Two. It, it had a stagger and after the war they came back people wanted to laugh the laughter was there and then television happened. Mm. And television basically killed off vaudeville and variety because you could now sit as a family and watch Sunday night at London Palladium with the very best variety acts of mm. everywhere on TV. And you would go home, so, you know, but we didn't get TVs, TV sets all over the place until the 1960s. Mm. And there was that gap. And then alternative comedy came along in 1979 as it was very political. People forget why. You know, winter discontent when the strikes everywhere. Maggie Thatcher was then elected out of that. And there are a lot of young people standing up going, we want change. We don't want this. And Alexis Sale and his band of merry men, including Tony Allen, and they, they, they decided that they didn't approve of the old-fashioned style comedy. And they, they put new rules in place in a sense, or a basis of mm. people who wanted to do comedy in the same way. And that was the no sexist, no racist, no homophobic jokes. And you look back and you go, actually, it's incredible, because mm. a comedy movement of young people in their 20s actually knocked all the old-fashioned comics mm. off stages and off the TV schedules mm. in quite a short space of time. How exciting was that? Mm. Yeah, so... And there's still, yeah, so then we've got this, we've got comedy back to where it had always been, mm. actually. And uh, there's a very famous playwright called J.B. Priestley. Um, and he was, he was Northern working cl uh, class. And he, in his early days, he was actually a, a cricket critic for, I think it was called the, the Bolton Bugler or something like that. And he wrote then, right back, late, late in the 1920s, he said, why is it? I can go and see a really great play to find that it's half empty. But you go down road and you get the variety hall packed. It's packed. And that's because people want to go and laugh. And yeah. we're back. Yeah. Well, this, this is the interesting thing. is like when that movement happened, yeah. I feel like TV was a lot more experimental and a lot more able to adjust to, to trends that were happening outside of TV. Whereas now, I, I think even recently they had that BBC... Um, I can't remember what it was called, but they had a, uh, oh, they, they, uh, it's like a census and loads of people said, we want you to be more experimental. You're doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And so it feels very much like, and I understand why, because with the internet, there's a lot more potential for media that people can put their time into rather than TV. And so I imagine there's a lot of uh, not risk taking in terms of commissioning because you, you just want to know that there'll they, be eyeballs. Yeah, so they just want to get the ratings. Who, you know, exactly. They want to fill the house like we do too. Exactly. And I can imagine that uh, even though there is a different trend happening on the live circuit, you can see the disconnect because I go to live a lot more than I watch TV on TV yeah. comedy. There's a massive disconnect between what happens live and what happens on TV. 
And I wondered how that is now affecting in your award, because obviously you're looking at live, you're not looking at for TV as such, but there are TV people on panels. So I'm wondering how much that's influencing well, their decisions. Well, uh, yes. So let's, let's just talk about the panels. I'll, I'll pick up, so one of the interesting you said was that uh, you thought TV uh, before Tent of Conti was born was more experimental. And I have to say, yeah, actually... But it came out of a change, something happening on the live side. And where the, there was a moment which changed it, and that moment was here. Mm. Go back to Edinburgh again, finding radical, you know, making a, having an upheaval moment in comedy. And that was 1960, when uh, Beyond the Fringe happened here. And that, I find that story incredible because it was four performers who'd never actually worked together as a team put together hmm we'd all go oh yeah that won't work wouldn't we because <laughs> being a team in comedy such as so big uh, it was a sort of one direction moment which succeeded because <laughs> you know the then artistic director of the Edinburgh International Festival put Jonathan Miller Tony Alan Bennett Peter Cook and Dudley Moore who had never worked together before and they clicked, and then Beyond the Fringe happened and went to London, ran, went to New York. And out of that came the big change in satirical television. That's how that was the week that was, and all the shows that came followed. So here we go. We go back to live comedy in Edinburgh to, do, to be something that changed television, just as live, live comedy coming out of the clubs with the uh, alternative comedy movement change the TV schedules. Mm. So uh, we do have television people on the panel, but but they are wanting to see, uh, they are totally open to anything that is different and experimental. And that, that, I suppose, comes back to the balance of the panel, doesn't it? How do you choose the judges? Mm. Because that, of course, is critical to the result that comes, results that come through. So it's quite structured. We always have... Um, seven professionals and three members of the public and the three members of the public are comedy fans who really know their stuff and who pay to watch comedy all the time and I think that payment bit is important because they're very aware what they think is a value for money ticket and they 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 write we make we, the competition's difficult they have to write three reviews of, of comedians that they particularly have enjoyed in the past year and why they should be on the panel and then they're interviewed and uh, I have to say is that their comedy knowledge is extraordinary these are people who, who go to clubs when two to three times a week and for those that live uh, in a small place they, they just try and grab as much comedy as possible and they can't perhaps see as much but they've built it up and they come here and they do they spend their precious money on their summer holiday coming to the fringe and doing as many shows as they can afford plus lots of shows on, on, on the free fringe and they're brilliant and they also come with this different point of view then we have we have someone from the, from the live world. We've got Jeff Rowe from Leicester this year. Love him, he's great. He's great, yeah. really knows his stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we have a mix of journalists, uh, comedy critics. So our chair this year is, uh, is Helen Hawkins from the Sunday Times. And uh, we, for the first time, put Mark Boosie oh, from British Comedy, comedy Guide, Guide yeah, because yeah, yeah. obviously he knows really his stuff. And we want that. Everyone needs internet uh, mm. reviews now, or interviewed space. He doesn't review per se. And Mark Wareham, who's the Mail on Sunday. So, uh, and then we have someone from BBC Comedy Radio, 
because we know how important that is. That is a next step coming out of Edinburgh for many people. And then we have a couple of television people who are looking for comedy. Um, and they're not going, they're not seeing a show and judging it on, can I use this for television? Sometimes they see a show and go, I've got an idea to put them on television, which is what I think the comedian might like to hear. Uh, not, but not everyone. Not but everyone, no. no, no, no you know. We have quite a lot of them. Yeah. But, they, but, but it's like anything else. Mm. Everyone likes to be asked. Yes, I'd and like to be asked you, to the party. And you can be asked and go. you can choose to say no. Mm-hmm. But if, you if you're not asked, you don't like that either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, you want... Success means performer choice. Yes. And that's where you're trying to go. Mm-hmm. And then if you can... If you, you know, I said Ma Daniel Kitson because he does exactly what he likes and on exactly his terms when and how he likes to do it. I love that. Mm. That's what we're all looking for as performers. That's what I wanted as an actress was to be able to choose my parts and who I might be able to work with. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you find, I found as an actress that I was quite successful and I worked all the time doing good parts, but you are always at the bottom end of the decision-making rule. Now, the comedians, you make all the decisions in terms of your work, but you still need to get invitations in terms of taking your work further. Mm. Yeah. And someone else to say, yeah, I like, yes, let's go with it. Mm. That, that's, aside from his talent and skill, is what I admire about Kitson, is the fact that he has been so... Uh, I mean, obviously, for his whole career, he's had agents and he's had people backing him, but more recently, he's had so much control over everything he's doing yeah. that, it, that for me that's the admiration part but of course right at the beginning you don't know exactly what you want totally even exactly. someone yeah. like, like Daniel he was you know standing up learning his craft mm. and um, I still remember the night that he won he wrote he, he said he made a very funny speech uh, about how he wasn't there at the um, when he accepted it and then he went down to Leighton Live uh, in the old Golden Balloon you know day went down down Late in life, he absolutely stormed it and he waved his award as, yeah, I was the one that won, you know. <laughs> it was a legendary night for those that were lucky enough to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's, but that's, that's Edinburgh, isn't it? Like, yes. you see stuff that will yes. never happen again. And, yes. And it's amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I was going to ask you, uh, with, with the proliferation of, of um, uh, comedy shows, yeah. there's actually been a lot more awards that have, have sprung up and yeah. have started. Do you think there are too many awards now? I, I'm thinking about that question. I, 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 we've had a lot of awards that have come and gone. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the awards that matter? Are the awards that stay? Mm-hmm. Because it's continu- continuity and seriousness is what does it. The, I, mean, I remember we had was it the Polo Award, People's Choice Award at one point, which sort of threw a lot of yeah caused a bit of a fuss, but didn't last for very long. That I think. Awards are good in the sense that they give someone some attention. They give, even if they give people a sense of achievement and encouragement, and that's that's good. Um, I think they they are overall a good thing. But uh, need I know that or, that people go I want more that's nice, but they still have to get up and go and name it the next day. I've been up for lots of awards in my theatre life. I think getting nominated is the most important thing because that tells you this kind of standard that you've achieved that year and tells the audience that. And then after that, you know, uh, after nomination, who wins can be a matter of of, of personal funny bone and mm-hmm. there's never going to be 
there's there's always there's always going to be personal choice, isn't there, about what you particularly find funny. I call it the golden year because all for all every nominee was so extraordinary and so different, and that was of course the 1991 when we had uh, Eddie Izzard, uh, Frank Skinner, Lily Savage, Paul O'Grady's Lily Savage, Jack D, and Avner the Eccentric um, on the shortlist, and I remember sitting through the shows twice and going who would I vote for? They're all bloody brilliant. They are fantastic and totally different. And it was a fight, and the same with the panel, five-hour debate, five hours to get to result. All of them spectacular, and all of them went on to be mega, mega successful and also influencers. Mm. And, you know, uh, it's... That's that last bit. It's like really hard, isn't it? You look and go, oh, who, would I, who would I actually vote for? Mm. Oh, you know, it's hard. That's how it should be. Yeah, but they, uh, there's that whole. Um, I can't remember who said it, but it was that thing. If you if you analyze a joke too much, it's like dissecting a frog. You know, you, you learn how it's funny, but it, the, the the frog dies essentially. And I wondered whether you think there's that you can analyze a comedy show too much. Well, I think you can you can certainly analyse the the main criteria, which is can the person write? Are they a good performer? Uh, those are the two performance and writing, isn't it? At the end of the day, those are the two big things. If you start to analyse every single bit of the material, I think you drive yourself mad. And I actually also think you have to remember that you are sitting there as a member of the audience and that the audience will talk about it, but not going to dissect it to bits. Dissecting to bits is a, is a bigger conversation in what should, they, what, should they, what should they work on to get better. So, you know, take a tennis player, Andy Murray, brilliant tennis player, um, and you hear the commentators going, oh, I've got to work a bit more on that forehand, and always oh, fix his forehand. I just think that lobspin, and that's what we're getting into there, and I don't think that's, that's I think that, that is, goes too far when you're seeing a load of performances and you're, you're actually analysing how great they are. Because mm. that's what we're talking about, is how great is this show? But are you, are you also looking at where they could go with that act and that show, or are you just looking at that show for that moment? We're looking at the show for what it stands for here. Okay. And, um, uh, I mean, we've, we've taken some... done. We, we, people have won, like last year... Richard Gadd won doing a very particular extraordinary show. Is that going to become a mass? Is that is he written it to become a massive TV series? No, he hasn't. Mm. Uh, you know, has he written? Can he dissect it and easily do it in clubs? Is he going to want to do that? No, not that's not. He needs to do his hour show as it stands, and we are all very grateful. To, you know, we're lucky actually. We have Soho Theatre in London. Mm where people can do We have Leicester Square Theatre. We have now more places where a comedian who is not super famous to be able to go and do their hour shows. And I, you were talking about that earlier, how important that is for comic and how much harder it is out of Edinburgh. Yes, it is. And there's two elements, isn't there? Comedian has to earn a living and you, you work hard to get your 20-minute or 30-minute, if you're the headliner, club set and to work to be the headliner. And you you need to go pay your rent, your mortgage like anyone else, and your travel and your expenses. So you work the clubs, and that's a good thing to do, and it's your bread and butter of your job. But you are aspiring at the same time to develop your work 
and get to your hour because and then getting to an hour where you could just do that because you are the headliner now mm. and you can do it and I, I think there's this complete route now for comedians that didn't used to be there where they can really grow their work if they're good enough mm. and at the end of the day you know there are comedians who have managed to become worldwide stars without tv and then millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me get your personalized plan today at noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Eddie Izzard is the big one because he always chose, he did very little television, he chose not to. He grew his live work and became, went on to film, you know, can play arenas, just did a run at one of my big theatres, the big theatre, the Palace Theatre, completely sold out. And that's exciting too. So that you have options now, guys and girls. It's great. Yeah, I, I, I was going to ask you a question about um, sort of the transferring from, from London, sorry, yeah. from Edinburgh to London. And um, before we go into that, actually, because um, I, I find a lot of stuff in Edinburgh happens in sort of a bubble and sort of a microcosm of, of what's happening in Edinburgh. And there's a lot of debate as to how much an award uh, means outside of Edinburgh and how much a review sort of carries you outside of Edinburgh realistically. How much do you think... Um, as as a producer uh, in the West End, how, how how much do you think an award, particularly well, yours, but in, yeah, in talking about work, mine, it was once yeah. summed up very well, I think, by Jonathan Thode Avalon, mm-hmm. who said the great thing is is that uh, what uh, what you do is you dump a million pounds worth of publicity on my act, mm. uh, and we get a lot of attention is able to be got for those for the shortlist and then, of course, the winner. And that's where we really try and promote the shortlist so it spreads. And you get national reviews and people love that for their posters and for their blurb and that helps to get more people. Because what are you trying to do? Widen your audience. Hmm. And I still remember when, in fact, Lily Savage, a Paul Grayslist that got nominated and we brought them to London and, and Donmar was closed at the time so we hit, we hit the Purcell Room in, in the South Bank, South Bank Centre. And um, Paul at that time was mostly playing, was playing the gay circuit. And he suddenly, he was at the Purcell room, he was getting couples and had to, or just a normal comedy audience. And they loved him. And it, 
he got nominated. It really, doing Edinburgh, getting the attention of a nomination changed, changed his whole audience. And very quickly, he became, Lily Savage became just a much loved comedy character. And it came out of a niche audience. You know, I first seen him at the Vauxhall Tavern, you know, as Lily Savage loved him. I thought, this guy is, is, is just a proper a proper vaudeville comedy act. He's a genius. Yeah. And, you know, he had to be persuaded to come to Edinburgh, and Brendan, his manager, per- persuaded him to. And Edinburgh and his nomination changed a lot. And that was so exciting. Mm. And that that is winning an award just simply or nom- getting nominated nominated mm. brings you you brings the act to the attention of a lot more audiences who otherwise might not come and sometimes you know and we've been putting them on in london they've come because they've they've got nomination they've mm. booked for everybody and there's some people they don't like and that's the way it is folks mm. that's the way it is folks yeah. you know you you don't know you but it, at least they're trying and that's what we're always trying to do is to widen our audiences get more and more people to see us and more and more different people to see us because the comics dream to play to a completely mixed audience of age yeah. and sex and yeah. diversity isn't it that's what you want oh, everyone yeah, yeah. access to everybody not yeah. not just be in a little corner somewhere well yeah i mean i, I was talking to aditi mattel who who's um she was one of the first uh, female comedians in india and she came over here last year for the first time and, and commented on how white the festival is essentially and how and how uh, it's a completely different audience to what she's used to playing to and um so for me it's quite interesting sort of uh, the more I've since I've done that interview and been up here I've noticed that in terms of my audiences and people who are coming and I do want more diversity in my audience and I do want because otherwise I feel like sometimes I can run the risk of saying something that would work to to a white audience but might not work to a to a certain other type of audience because we, we kind of have a shared uh, opinion and we have a shared um, so I've got to be careful what I, I say. Have to be careful. But, yeah, no, yeah. but we we are all. You're, everyone's talking about their own experience. Yes. And when you come from different different or well, different cultures, different families, you, it's a different experience. Of course. And that's all there is to it. And sometimes not everyone understands your experience. Mm. And then you, if, if you have an audience that mostly don't understand what you're talking about, it's gonna you're not going to get laughs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think on that, you know, I was I was sort of looking at it and um, I looked up the population base of the UK which was a very good start actually mm-hmm. I wish I'd done it before because <laughs> uh, London where I live is a bubble of its own mm. I don't know do you, perhaps like, should I make you guess what the population base of the UK is would you like to do that I, no I don't, I don't think I'd be able to even hear everyone that, gets then. it wrong okay. um, I got it wrong but and that is how they do it is that white Anglo-Saxon everybody else mm-hmm. so everybody else is mixed in together right. That's what, and it comes from census originally but at the moment the official inverted commas and there's somewhere in the guardian that reflects this too is that uh, roughly it's it's but it's 15 percent bame and uh 85 percent white and in london it's 60 40 really? yeah okay 60 percent white and 40 percent bame those are the figures that if you go on the net and look officially yeah. come up so it's it's hardly surprising that if you apply the 15% mm. uh, equation, that it will be a lot whiter. Mm. That's just the way kind of it is at t- today. Yeah. And it's changed because it used to be, you know, 99% white and uh, is changing our society and will carry on changing. Who knows what we like in a few years time, but mm. it cha- that's diverse also has to, it's, it's happening now because we've got people who were 
in their 40s when the alternative comedy start, boom started and now obviously um, 30 years older. And I'm delighted to see how, since when I was standing up at the Fimbra Arms comparing an audience in 1983, how different a comedy audience is. And it's really representative of the population. I think that's great. And when you look who's on stage, that's great. Because again, you know, when I started, um, when, I was, when I saw all the shows eligible in 1984, uh, there were hardly any women. And I'm glad now that women are not such an unusual... Um, there are women are coming through, they're great, they're doing a good job. And yes, the question of, are women funny? Dead boys and girls, dead, dead, dead as a concept. Well, the, mm, this is the thing, is I, I, I'd love to agree that it is dead. I, agree, I personally agree as that it is. As a concept. Uh, yeah, but there, there are still people out there that still, still do that thing where they go, Mm, it's a woman on stage. I, I'm not going to give them as I'm not going to give them the ten seconds I'd give a man to do a joke. Oh, and, and, no, I mean, oh, it drives, shame on them. I know it drives me insane as well. We were actually talking about this just before we started. Shame you, on you've them. You've got the numbers. You brought I the have numbers. Got the numbers. Yeah, no, I have got the numbers. We keep, we are very statistic up, and it was a slow burn. It, it took time, and it, it needed it needed uh, women to see other women doing it, That's and we bit. only ever had a few. And, you know, it was so great that in the early days we had, who did both live and television, um, two, two geniuses mm. in Victoria Wood on the one hand and the double act of French and Saunders on the other. What great role models. Mm. Couldn't have been more different as women either. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, obviously Emma Thompson in the group was the first mm. winning in the first group. But it was a long time, you know, you think 1995, the first solo woman in Jenny Eclair. It was a long wait. And it's interesting how it was a slow burn and now it's really accelerated where, where you know, women are, are choosing comedy as a career. thinking, yeah, I can do comedy as a career. Mm. But the other good news is there's quite a lot of women around comedy. Not everyone's a performer. And um, people often say to me, oh, yeah, what happened to Laura Solon then? You know, one in, in 2005. It took another 10 years to get another woman. Well, she, she decided that she was much happier writing than performing. And she's, sitting, she's in L.A. now being extremely successful in comedy, but as a writer and actually writes proper Hollywood movies. Yeah. And, um, and if people forget Alice Lowe, who I love, who was in Garth Marenghi when they won mm. a few years ago, and I still remember Matthew Horner's going, I could, could not find anyone who can play a camel as well as Alice. <laughs> mm. uh, but she's now writing and directing films too. She's really, you know, expanded. And lots and lots of comedy producers. Mm. I, I, when I first started this pro, pro, podcast, I got a little bit of, I wouldn't say backlash, but I got a few comments from people because first episode was a woman, it was Hills Jager. And then I had three or four episodes that came out and they were men. And I had people going, well, that's not equal, is it? You're not, you're not keeping the balance. And I went, well, no, but wait a minute and there'll yeah. be more women in it. And the more I've done it, the more I've realised, so agents is about 50-50 gender-wise. Um, Promotion-wise, it's probably 60-40 in my experience, as in like club stuff. Um, PR, it's a little bit more female-orientated than, than male. Um, and it's kind of like you, 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 can't, you can't base it on a, on a split like that because it's just where they want to work. It's not, it's not yeah, you yeah. know... I mean, I walk into big West End marketing meetings and it's 
it's probably entire female team now because mm. that's where they're choosing they're, they like to, they're, yeah. they're choosing to work I, th- I, think, I think the problem comes out is if we say they're not funny that's why we're not booking them yeah. that's their problem but if they don't want to like you said if she wins an award and then goes and does writing that's fine yeah, yeah. exactly so and, and also I think with stand up too is that um, that's a starting point for a lot of people mm. and they do it and then actually they suddenly discover that there's a different place that they are happier in comedy. Let me take someone who I'm a great fan of, um, David Williams. Now, David did actually do live work and did actually start live work and did Edinburgh. And and, uh, he and Matt were scooped up by um, Family Moore, a female producer, and together they made Little Britain. And then they they found their whole TV personas and now here's David Williams, you know, as I said earlier, that uh, t- two weeks ago I was st- in the foyer of the Garrick Theatre and it was a press, press opening night show, main West End show, a whole group of the audience refused to take their seats. They stood in the foyer, they would not move because they knew that the author of the book the show was placed on was coming, they were not going to move until they'd seen him. And when, all I can say is, you try telling a load of seven to eleven-year-olds to move. When David Williams walked in the foyer, they just faces lit up. They, went, they all brought gangster granny. When he came on at the end of sta- stage, they were shouting and whooping for him. And here he is now. He's major, major. He's one of the biggest children's authors in this country. He sold over a million books. He's love. They love him, and he was brilliant. He waited. He took at the end when he came on at the end. A little boy ran up the stage. Said, I want a picture. He stood, took the picture, and then of course he had to come off the stage and take a lot more pictures yeah, of yeah, the yeah, kids. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I'm saying is how, you know, that the 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 uh, work experience you get doing live stand up is such that you learn so much so quickly. You get there are. Some people go on to lots, to lots of other areas. They push their, their skills. Julian Clare is writing children's books. Mm. Jenny Clare writes extremely good novels now. And I was very, the day a few years ago, I saw her actually uh, on the Sunday Times bestselling list. I texted her and said, you're on the bestselling list. She said, I know. It's so exciting. So um, it was, it's, it's, yeah, it's quite extraordinary, really, that there are just other routes, and some people just don't return back to their life. Routes. No, of course. And, and I was going to say, I mean, I know you won't take credit for anything to do with the award, because you've already said, I, I, won't, I won't do that, but how do you think when, when the first female sort of won an award, do you think that had an impact to make yeah, people I do. go... I do. Yeah. Uh, but but also, I remember I witnessed it, you know, because after, when I was writing the Donmar, we used to do late night comedy um, Fridays and Saturdays and comparing them myself at the Fimbra. I watched how when a woman came on, the audience collectively folded their arms. And that was the women in the audience too. Girls, we can't get out of that. Going, oh yeah, show us. And in the early days, they'll tell you the, the uh, early comedians, the amount of show us your tits, and they had to learn to deal with that. And just they just do, and they do, still do today from time to time. Mm. But I think it's fun. It's just a few people. And to be honest, uh, I'd say to all the ladies listening to this, let's not, the pricks, put their, their problems onto us. That's what they do. It's their yeah. problem. Mm. Uh, and that, but we don't have the debate 
we don't get the articles anymore of the so oh, can women be funny which was insulting beyond belief mm. and um, I'm I think that's I'm very proud of that I think that's fantastic that finally you know, that has been put to bed mm. and thank you to all the brilliant female comedians who've been leading the way and get up and say that mm. and we have to say it mm. you know, so, yeah, yeah. but it's over yeah and I think the whole world you know the, there's a I don't, I don't, I haven't seen that in the last few festivals. Mm. I'm sorry that you've told me that it still happens in some places, but I don't it's, see it's, that anymore. Fewer and fewer places it happens, but you do see it happening. And I do have friends of mine who do clubs and they say, you know, you can see they, they turned off when you went on or, or you can see them when, you know, the compare goes, the next act is a female comedian, as if it's some sort of, you know... Well, and I don't think compare should say that. No, no, do I. Actually, why do they need to make a point about the gender? They no. just say, great, ne- great act coming on. <laughs> Joe Bloggs could be a man or a woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I've, I've never seen one go, here comes a non-binary person. They yeah, just yeah. happen to do, yeah. So, well, that's, they, that, I think you might be starting a little campaign here. <laughs> do not make a point of the gender of the person walking on. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's not it's relevant to the job, really, like to what they're about to do. Or at least it shouldn't be, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I absolutely totally agree with that. Um, when I started, you know, when I changed sides, there were very few female artistic directors, and um, there's it's, you know, the whole attitude's changed. It's great. Yeah, uh, there's one one thing yes. I'd like to say just to put to rest a sort of misconception or Please. or a potential misconception is you don't then have a quota of like we need to go and see a certain number of females, certain number of male comedians. We see we everybody. To, no, no, no. As in, like, to put them forward. So, like, we need to have one person nominated who's a woman one person who's a man one, you don't have that I'm I'm delighted to say that women do it on their own merit which I think is better and, and I think that's what they wish to do yeah. and I'm delighted to say that we actually have a very good pool of women to choose from mm. and every year I've looked at the newcomers coming through and seeing how many women this year here we are 2017 uh, there are great slew of new women there's obviously i'm talking about ladies i am talking about just the newcomers at the moment um so there are a lot there is a lot of very good women so um it's now getting to the place where it should be society has changed we've all helped to change it and isn't that great more work to be done yeah of course but pretty good do you, do you ever get a level of anxiousness if you're going to announce the nominees and there just are no women in it I would feel, I'd feel anxious, I would definitely feel anxious if there hadn't been enough good women to make it, yes, mm. because I, uh, I'd have to look at, who have we been seeing, why, you know, no, I, I think we, comedy is in an incredibly healthy place now, okay. and um, we will, I get teased all the time with, so come on then, we had so many years of it, when are we going to have the all-female shortlist, <laughs> and it's like, when that's how it works out mm. uh, and that's that would of course really you know it would just make me laugh with pleasure mm. and that is not against any of the men no, it's no. just that it would be such a first mm. and it would be a real a, a big clarion call mm. to, as a statement mm. when you saw that because why because it would be so remarkable everyone will be talking about it mm. and when everyone's talking about the fact that women are so have, have actually just smashed it then it becomes easier and that's the only that's the thing but in an ideal world you'd have you'd hope you could get 50 50 Mm. 
but we've still got less women doing it. This year, about 20% of the acts over across the festival are female. Maybe it might be 25% if I've miscounted because we have to count them. So, you know, I would hope that that would 25% 25% of the shortlist could be female then because that's what it is you can't it's harder to get an equal shortlist if there aren't the equal numbers of the sexes choosing to do it yeah. but the point is women can choose to do it mm. they do choose to do it please keep on doing it and please uh, everybody come and enjoy the fun and pile in if you are very talented and just can think of nothing else more to do than want to make people laugh because it's hard and you have to be brilliant. Um, so these are the last quick five. Can I just let ask it? Are you satisfied that I've answered? Are you happy about how the awards are, uh, got? How the awards are run? How they got yeah. together? How serious we are about them? Yeah, I, I never doubted that. By the no, way, I'm no, just saying because it's, it's, it's important to discuss it. We're totally transparent. Yeah, the the the, the point of this podcast of, of this episode. Totally, tra- totally transparent about process. We yeah. just never give away details because no. I don't want people crying. <laughs> You know? Yes, I can imagine that's that's the problem. This is the whole point of the. So you wouldn't give feedback if someone said, "Oh, you came to see me. Can I have some feedback?" I would only. It would depend on who it was. If it was personal rather than my position, and it would be constructive. Yes. Uh, for me, Edinburgh. I, I've, I'm an Edinburgh veteran. I've done it myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I've written, direct, written, performed, and directed, and produced here mm-hmm. across comedy and drama, and uh, I think this. There's nowhere like this festival that gives artists of all sorts the opportunity simply to come and do their own work as they want to do it and see if they are good enough, see if people come, see if people like it. Mm. And, uh, and if they don't, have the hell of a time anyway, because you learn something by that yourself too. But um, uh, so everything about the words is about encouragement, encouragement mm. of the art form of comedy, encouragement for the performers uh, and take, being, taking a very positive spin on every aspect of it and that's what, what counts and we, we, do, we, know, we, we know how it's sensitive we know, how, we know that people feel it's real imprimatur and they want to get nominated and the way we try and make them is, is to be so thorough and careful and you know with so many shows to see, we do now have to employ, have to use scouts, but they are all former judges that were members of the panel. That mm. these are mostly the, uh, the members of the public, and also some professionals come back and scout for us because we have to have people who really know what they're doing, mm. and we feel that everyone who does it feel that the system works, and the judges care that that's true too, and they, you know, it works. It's thorough. And we have some often surprising results because of that. Yeah. Well, when, when it comes down to... Because um, obviously everyone's comedy taste is so subjective yes. themselves. And it's actually, I'm finding more and more intrinsically linked to who they perceive themselves are as well. Because sharing what makes you involuntarily get surprised or, or get happy is something that, you know, is, is, especially when you take into account you are accountable for your own happiness. It's such a personal thing. So do you ever have a moment where someone goes, I really like this person, people go, we, don't, we didn't like that, and they've had to sort of push someone through or they've had to go, you know, I don't, I don't care that you don't like them as a person or, or that you think they're whatever, they're funny to me. And so had, you, you've had that sort of discourse. Like, what's, what's that like when that happens? Uh, it's, there is that... The debates uh, as part of the process are absolutely lively. Uh, 
no holds barred. We try, uh, we always say we're going to do this in civilised fashion. <laughs> so no one's actually, doesn't, no one insults anyone else. But um, it is, and, and people accept that. Sometimes, you know, that's what, what people go to comedy do a lot, is they go, I know X is brilliant, not my funny bird, not my cup mm. of tea. Totally happy that they should be shortlisted. Mm-hmm. And it's all done on votes. And we're very careful Again, you know, we've we we've met we meet people we, we know the panel before mm. they get we we found out a lot about them, and we encourage diverse tastes around the pub around the table for exactly that, and that's also why the panel is mixed in it's equal in gender, mm. and we mix up the ages. We always make sure that we have a young person, young people in there, and I was sitting in an audience uh, last couple of days ago and I uh, really liked the show but I also noticed as a newcomer that the 20-somethings in the audience were totally united because the comedian was talking about exactly their time of life and their experience. Now for someone like me I've obviously done everything that he's talked about and so he didn't speak to me as directly but I saw what was happening mm. with his age group and also he was very funny mm. And we take that understanding because the comedy audience will be diverse. And the fact that he was uniting in his entire age group said an awful lot to me. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, we, it is diverse and we do take that into consideration and we, we discuss it at great length. And I watch sometimes panel members change their mind by the very good arguments of others. Mm. And they'll go, yeah, I can see that. No, I can I'll go back and see them again. And they say, yeah, got all that. So, yeah, lively debate, and um, it's fascinating to listen to. And I think if comedians could listen to her, the seriousness and the, uh, the, the real sort of um, um, detailed debate, they would actually love it, as long as it wasn't their name on the table. <laughs> I think if you muted out names, that would be a podcast a lot of people would download. Yeah, never, never, no, no, no. because it's not, you know, we, we, we have to have... We have to be, we have to be, have, we have a lot of integrity. We have to do it properly and in a way that that process is clear and everyone is considered. But we try where we can not to tread on people's dreams. Mm-hmm. And, and have there been any mistakes along the way that you've learnt from that you would say are something that you now don't do? Or yeah, or, or we think, well, because it's changed mm. and we changed, you know, we had to to decide on how on the length of time and, and have a good look at that um, we had the, one of the big things that's been that's been um, a source it's been a source of big debate and, and it's I'll talk about it now because uh, I personally am very fond of that particular part of comedy but improv we after a while we improv was included in and then we found then it's no longer included in. Why? Because the panel were going and seeing very different shows. Of course, yeah. And what happened was we had one year when there was a very, very strong uh, group of improv troops shows and um, there was a huge amount of debate. We had to keep sending panellists back because when they discussed the show, they go, oh, well, you know, did they do an incredible scene where I went, nope, didn't happen on my night. We found it impossible to judge, mm. and um, we have had um, representations since then um, from a couple of improv groups saying, well, we, you know, we feel we're really upset we're not included, we think we should be included. That is the reason. Is it, it just, we, 
comedians can change their show as they go along. They'll drop material and put new material in, but they won't fundamentally. It won't be fundamentally different. Mm. Whereas improv, it can be fundamentally different, and uh, that's that's the one thing that you know that's changed. For example, but surely you're judging improv on their ability to play off the audience and, and keep do. the thing going, rather than the actual show structure itself. We do all of that, but sometimes the shows can go can be so totally different. It's it's impossible. It's like it's like comparing apples and eggs between the panelists, mm. and we couldn't find a way of doing it. If you were if you had an improv category mm. and you were then judging the troops as to how good they were as a team mm. uh, on a consistent basis, that you could pick out who was the best team that year, couldn't you? Uh, probably. Mm. Though there's always that one night when people just, you know, that I worked with the Comedy Store players for ages and then with, with Mike McShane and Steen and Sween, Steen, and there's a magic that happens with a really tight team, just magic. Um, and even though sometimes they don't have such a good night, but uh, I have huge admiration for it. But you know that was one thing. And um, the time, how like the show should be another. Um, uh, as we've, as things, if anything happens, we learn, and that's what we all should be doing. And we really try our best, um, and we listen to what people have to say to us. People ring up, they write, they lobby, they put points forward. Everyone's listened to, not always agreed with. But that's all you actually need. You must. People must have a hearing, wasn't they? An opinion. Mm. We all have opinions. Yeah. And we do our best to steer our way and make it as fair and clear as possible. Yeah, and and like you said, it it comes down to um, the the panel knowing what they're talking about. Yeah. And the panel being able to justify stuff if if they sort of say, well, actually, that person is funny to me because obviously. It, I mean, Richard Gadd's show, for example, um, it could be that someone found that absolutely hilarious and other people just thought, oh, it's actually a really, really amazing piece of work. And so they have to validate why why they think it should win rather than, yeah. rather than why they think it's funny or why they think it's whatever. Yeah, and I'm proud of the fact that, you know, the, the awards don't, they don't, uh, they're not afraid of challenging material. And Richard's an example of that. But the other one, which is, for me, one of the shows I will always remember in Edinburgh was uh, Adrian Truscott and her one lady in her pussy and comedy about rape and well I've never seen a show like that but also making the points so totally that no means no and she got the panel prize Spirit of the Fringe it was something it was a fantastic show challenging material not for everybody either mm. that's um, what I find interesting you've got a panel prize that you don't necessarily give away every year and the other two, you definitely do. Yeah. So would you ever, have you ever had a moment where you thought, like, actually, there isn't a newcomer that well, we want to give? <laughs> yeah. Okay, you've, you have inadvertently, yes, no, I know. I got a lot of shtick at the time. Uh, I got a lot of shtick. I got laughed at uh, in, in not the nice laughter kind of way. Uh, and um, uh, it, was it the right thing to do? I don't know. It felt the right thing at the time. Uh, so you can all laugh at me now again and in, revel in it. So, yeah, 2008, we, we, we brought in the panel prize in 2006. And how we did it was I did a big consultation at the end of 2005 where I sent a questionnaire to all the comedians that had been um, at the Fringe the year before uh, asking themselves a range of questions about how the awards were run. It's a proper consultation. And one of them was, 
Do you think there should be a third award? If so, what do you think it should be? Here are some of the things that you've suggested, which was what people were telling me at the time, not enough awards. Uh, Sketch, best sketch, uh, best international. Um, We'd had a little moment where people were going, not fair, you know, someone comes off from Australia and wins the award and buggers back off to Australia and never gets anything out of it. We got a lot of that after Lane and Woodley won. um, uh, And, you know, they felt that surely it it should be someone who would benefit being here. Well, that's not, um, Mm. it's an international festival, guys, Mm. you know, so no, we're not, we don't care where they've come from. Um, And uh, uh, Mark Watson won it the first year. So so anyway, they couldn't agree what that third award should be. Um, uh, And then loads of suggestions came in and nothing got more than 10%. Well, that's not enough reason. So we decided to create a third award, which the panel could choose, which was loose and would actually just reflect a moment of comedy in the fringe that year. And that's why it was sort of Spirit of the Comedy Award could be anything. And the first year it was Mark Watson and his very first uh, 24-hour uh, show. And then in 2007 was Arthur Smith and Arthur Art. Um, and then 2008, the panel didn't feel there was anything that was the show. They couldn't find something. So we had to decide whether we didn't award it that year or... We, or, well, so we we sort of didn't really award it because they couldn't they couldn't find a show that felt right, and so I thought, well, there's five thousand um, pounds that you know is for this. What do I do with it? So I said, right, we'll give it to all the comics, and we'll give it to all the comics by putting five thousand pounds behind the bar on the last night of the festival. So it goes down as every comedian on the fringe. Mm. Uh, a lot of people had a lot of fun out of that uh, and uh, the, the next year that mischief imp who I adore Richard Herring was the one who said right um, I won the panel prize last year every comedian won it so I can put that on my poster and then quite a lot of people thought yeah that's a great idea I mean there was a, just a great joke and I know it was a metaphorical lobbying of a custard pie in my face, which uh, I have to say I was covered in custard pies by the end of a few weeks. Uh, We said, no, no, please don't do that because it's not fair on the public. You know, please, please, please don't. It's not that we value everybody for coming and having a go. And you can't at least say I didn't give the money back to comics Mm. because I did. Uh, but that there you go. That was a moment. After that, there's someone that we've every year we felt was that, and the wrestling got it one year, mm-hmm. which we love. Karen Corran, who you've, you've uh, done a fantastic podcast. You told lots of lovely stories to us. And Iraq out of out and loud won it so last good. year. Which yeah. wasn't that just right? Yeah, it was just absolutely right. As was as was uh, Adrian Truscott the year that she won it in two thirteen. So, you know, I think. Mm. Uh, and yeah, but there's never been a time where you've thought there's not a best show, there's not a best newcomer. We just won't. No, never, okay. never, no. In fact, if anything, it's like it's got to be one person because I can honestly say that the shortlists are the shortlists are a, a sort of standard standard bearer that for that year, and it's really, really fantastic. They're, they're, uh, every shortlist I've gone proud to stand by that these are great shows any member of the audience who buys a ticket to go and see these shows will think they're great shows even if they might 
that even if it's not their funny bone, they should see it's a good show. But occasionally people do go and go, well, I didn't see why they found that funny. That's comedy for you. Mm-hmm. And they may not have found them funny, but I, I can tell you they were bloody good on the night. Do you think there's a limit then? So say someone won the 2000 award. Do you think there's a limit for how long they should be allowed to put that on their on their posters? No, I think it's a matter of personal cha- taste. And quite often, you know, stars will put all their awards on mm. as a list. And why they put it on here is because that's where they came from. And it's actually marked the festival as well, and it's part of the history. So, uh, you know, you, you get some comedians now. I mean, how many awards could Steve Coogan put on his list? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, that's it's part of their history now, and the nominations are part of their history, mm. so it's perfectly valid. And they'll just decide when they feel they've just gone so past it. This mm. is, they might come back and they're playing oh, the Edinburgh Playhouse that it's time to not mention that anymore because they are now such a star. People come because it's them, and how lovely is that for them? Definitely. Um, these are the last quick fire questions. Yes. Um, who do you think is the most underrated person in the comedy industry? Oh, I f- find it, I think everyone asks that find it hard to uh, to actually uh, put your finger there, just make, name one person. I think in the context of the awards, uh, the person who schedules the awards and it is is it is a mind. It's really tough. Luckily, uh, computers and digital have come along. So for this year, I have to say, uh, Emma Brunges, uh, our wonderful young producer who schedules it, uh, she's pretty. She's totally under un, non-rated because people don't realise it. Uh, but I would say again, I would say to our fantastic scouts who give their holidays. They take the holidays from their jobs to come and see comedy back to back. We had one of our judges, actually, this year, of the public, has already seen 90 shows yesterday. No, when I, I saw him on Tuesday night, and he'd done 90 shows. And he's going for the record, uh, which for comedy stands, at, I think, at 130 shows for our panel. Um, and uh, the Scouts are, and a lot of them do Leicester Comedy Festival as well, they're brilliant, and they do love it. They do love comedy, and to each of the comedians, I can say they love you, uh, but they, they're really fab, fab, fabulous. Hmm. What do you think is the biggest problem in the comedy industry, and how would you go about solving it? Here? Uh, either at the fringe or in the wider Well, I, I think the current, uh, right now, the change between print and digital, and for me, I would say something that is affecting all comics and has been desperate this year is not enough proper good critical reviews reviews written by, by by proper critics who can write just not enough coverage for the acts and they need the oxygen the oxygen of publicity to go forward and to be feel that they're taken seriously and i remember bob burnham bo burnham when he came and uh he was nominated and won the panel prize he said to me he said, my god he said i've been doing this since i was 14 years old i have never had the privilege of such erudite, serious, critical, critical reviews in national newspapers. You guys are so, it's just incredible, you guys are so lucky. It's an important part of the process, and we, we are trying to think about what we can do to help the Scotsman, the papers up here, and the national newspapers give 
more more space to comedy and to the to the whole festival because we know why and this is not being being cross or anything that the papers are cutting back everyone's short of money it's expensive so i think we have to think very hard about what i call the crisis in uh proper critical reviews for comedians and uh, definitely here but also even when they're doing their you know their soho theater runs their london runs uh, we need to get talked about comedians need to get talked about as proper artists and properly reviewed so i think that's that's the crisis and if you talk to the, to the prs this year they're going well i can't get anyone because you know they're really trying so there you go that's my thing for this year Mm. And how would you go about solving it or how would you go about helping it? Well, we help, uh, and I think the Fringe Society can help too, we should be able to help journalists by providing accommodation. Um, we don't have an agenda, we're not promoting We're not promoting a comic, a single comic, just comedy. Yeah. So we're able to be helpful because we exert no influence on what they say or what they think, and I'm, we're not interested in doing that, uh, because it's the, it's the cost of them coming too, and then we have to... Mm persuade and the public can help oh do i feel a little movement coming on here we need to let the the public know uh, all the comedy people go to comedy that we want to see our comedians uh, comedians reviewed in the newspapers and we will read the newspapers to re- to read their reviews there you go there's an idea Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming My on. pleasure. That was Nika. She is such a comedy nerd. I loved it. I really did. It's always great to hear passion and excitement from behind the scenes, especially something like a competition. I think when you're taking part in a competition, you can often get swept up in the wanting to win it or who's doing better than you, that you forget that there are some good people doing their best to offer promotion for the industry as a whole. Thank you so much for Nika for taking part, as well as Anna Arthur for sorting out the interview and for being so cooperative during the Edinburgh Fringe, which is clearly their most busy time of the year, so I can't thank you enough for doing that, as well as listener and fan of the podcast who was on the Edinburgh panel, who originally helped sort this out and put me in contact with Anna and Nika, Steve Morton. Thank you very much for all your help. I couldn't have done this without you, so sincerely thank you for all of the cooperation and help that you guys did to support the show. As far as I know, this was actually Nika's first podcast, so it's an exclusive Uh, which is quite nice. If you uh, enjoyed this, please do share it with someone who you think will get some value out of it. Uh, Or you can tweet Nika to say thank you. Um, It's always really helpful to the show because it shows the guest that there are people listening and appreciating the subjects we're talking about. And it means that when I approach them or if I do approach them and ask them for introductions to other people, they go, oh yeah, I had a great time on that. Some people tweeted me, they listened to it. I'll introduce them to other people, which helps me get bigger and better guests. So if you have enjoyed it and you sincerely want to say thank you to her, please do it doesn't take long and it's immeasurably helpful to the show quick plugs i'm going to ireland from the 10th of october 2017 for two weeks to do shows in galway cork dublin and bray if you live near any of those places please come uh i'm bringing laughter as the best placebo to ireland and i can't wait uh, and i'm also doing some spots in different clubs all the details are on my website which is simoncane.co.uk if you're new here please do hit the subscribe button if you're old here please do consider giving us an honest review in itunes and either way if you'd like to give a donation just to keep the show going um, this show lives or dies on donations and the support of the community of the listeners so if you have one pound to say thank you for this episode just a pound I'd massively appreciate it. If everyone did it, we would be somewhere towards getting breaking even. So if you can't afford it, don't donate. If you can, 
If you can spare a pound and it's just sitting in your PayPal doing nothing, send it my way. Uh, it would really appreciate it. Uh, at simonkane.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for donating. And thank you very much for sharing if you do. The Arsenal Industry Podcast is a fruit that got in gravity's way production for the internet. All elements were created by me, comedian Simon Kane. If you'd like to contact me about anything related to the show, you can tweet me at this made me cool or email me simon.m.caine at gmail.com. And I'll see you all in about 14 days' time. Bye! Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. The best way to give someone a gift they'll never forget is to give a gift they'll always use. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. And a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. But American Giant makes a lot more than just hoodies. They have impossibly comfy sweaters, classic t-shirts, soft, structured sweatpants, even classic everyday denim, all made right here in the USA, with a quality you'll have to feel to believe. Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code GRATEFULAG23.